the early church was a place of what we would call radical egalitarianism. In a worship service, masters and slaves would worship shoulder to shoulder, sharing a holy kiss in greeting as social equals, brothers and sisters together in Christ. In worship, each of them came with something to share, a hymn, a word of instruction, a tongue or interpretation, a revelation, a prayer or a prophecy. Each of them, slave or free, male or female, young or old, Jewish background or Gentile background, all the stifling social conventions and rigid hierarchies of the outside world suspended or discarded in the name of love, in the name of Christ. All of them eating together as a family, something unimaginable from either a Jewish or Greco-Roman point of view. But, as we saw last week, the church in Corinth didn't always get radical egalitarianism right. Indeed, there were at least two things that got Paul really, really upset. This week, we read about the second of those two issues. We read Paul's reaction to how they were doing the Lord's Supper, or Holy Communion, as we might call it. They were doing it wrong. And Paul is upset. In fact, Paul is extremely upset, and he uses astonishingly direct and forceful language. Uh, For various reasons, that may not be immediately obvious as we read our English translation, but unlike us, Paul and his friends in Corinth are living in an honor-shame culture where praise and approval are extremely important. To shame someone publicly, to disapprove of them, especially when they're in a situation where they might be expecting approval, to be honored and praised, catastrophic. That could very well be, probably would be, a relationship-ending action. And Paul does shame them, or at least he shames the leadership of the church, but he has good reasons for doing so. And we'll think about that a little bit later. In the section that we've read from this morning from 1 Corinthians, it details the problem, what it was that they were doing wrong, and the solution, how not to do the Lord's Supper wrong. But before we get to that, we might need a little bit of clarification as to what the Lord's Supper actually is. As a church today, we we celebrate the Lord's Supper, don't don't we? It's also known as Eucharist or Holy Communion or Mass, and we, we do that regularly in church. It's a symbolic meal involving a token piece of bread and a token sip of wine or grape juice. And for centuries now, we've understood the Lord's Supper to be a sacrament, one of two sacraments recognized by all Christians across all denominations. Baptism is the sacrament of entry into God's church, and the Lord's Supper is the sacrament of celebration of belonging in God's church. 
it's probably worth remembering what a sacrament is. A sacrament is, is three things, essentially. A sacrament is a physical thing done, perhaps in a token way, because it has a spiritual meaning. Secondly, a sacrament is something that Jesus has commanded us to do. It's a gift to his church from him. And thirdly, a sacrament is something that we do that is accompanied by words that Jesus gave us to say while we're doing it. So-called words of institution. Something that must be said at the time of the physical action so that it becomes actually a spiritual transaction. Holy Communion, the sacrament, is based upon the Last Supper, the, the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples the night before he died. And Jane read to us Matthew's account uh, from his gospel. And as we heard, the disciples, what they understood themselves to be doing, was sharing the Passover meal together. Now, the Passover meal, a meal that the Jews ate together in Jerusalem annually, the Passover meal, the Passover feast, did two things. Firstly, it reminded the Jews of how God had saved them how God had saved them from slavery in Egypt by bringing divine judgment down upon their world, down upon Pharaoh and his system, down upon Pharaoh and his gods, killing all the firstborn. But the Hebrews were saved from God's judgment on the world. They were saved by the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb that they'd sacrificed and ate together, the lamb whose blood was, was taken and, and, and smeared across the door lintel and the doorposts. So firstly, they remembered how God had saved them. Secondly, it was a celebration of belonging altogether as God's people. Everyone who lived in Israel, native-born or immigrant or refugee, ritually clean or unclean, it didn't matter, as long as the males had been circumcised, everybody was to celebrate the Passover together. A celebration of belonging as God's people. That's it in a nutshell. In the Passover, we remember how God saved us and we celebrate belonging to each other. But at that Last Supper... Jesus gives the old meal a new meaning when he says, in effect, it's all about me. I am the true lamb who takes away the sins of the world. This now, the cross, is the true salvation event. Now, you can read about the Last Supper in the first three Gospels in the New Testament. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, the fourth gospel, he does not tell us about the Last Supper, but it's equally clear that he expects us to, to know about it. It's assumed reading, it's assumed knowledge in order for what he has to say to, to make sense. Now, with respect to the accounts of the Last Supper in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get barely, barely the faintest hint that Jesus somehow expected his disciples to repeat that meal. In fact, we only get one little hint, and it comes from Luke's gospel, 
wherein we read Jesus saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. A command from Jesus. A command to repeat. A command to do something by way of remembering. In the book of Acts, we read a small number of times, we read about Christians coming together to break bread, in other words, to eat together. And it is clear that sometimes as they broke bread, that was in the context of prayer and worship and singing and apostolic teaching. Maybe, maybe at some point, at maybe at the point at which the loaves were broken into in order for them to be distributed, perhaps at that point, people paused to remember the gospel. Jesus died on the cross on our behalf for our sin and was raised on the third day for our justification. He now reigns at the Father's side from where he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We are one body, for we all share in the one bread. That's logical. It may even be likely, but it's conjectural. We don't know. We just don't know for sure. But it is clear from our text today that what we understand as the Last Supper, a once and once only event, We understand how it was transformed into the Lord's Supper, a sacrament, a meal of symbolic portion size only. We understand that journey from Last Supper to Lord's Supper because of the text we have in front of us today. We see clearly from 1 Corinthians that what we would call the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, it was part of a feast, part of a large meal. And that would make sense to the Christians there of Jewish background because all of their sacred meals were feasts, including the Passover. That was a big meal. And it would also make sense to all the Christians there of Greco-Roman or Gentile background because likewise pagan sacred meals in their temples were full-on barbecues, spit roasts maybe, with plenty of wine. Coming from either background, it was obvious that worship was to be done in the context of a full meal. Now to the specific problem that Paul is addressing. And as we read the text, we see that there are seven statements relating to that problem. Firstly, now with respect to the Lord's Supper, what's happening is toxic, not nutritious. Secondly, the church, when she comes together as a unity, is not acting as a unity, but acting, not acting as a unified body, but rather she's obviously got a split personality, verse 18. There are splits or quarrels amongst you. Thirdly, given this, whatever it is that you think you're doing, it's not the Lord's Supper that you are doing, verse 20. Rather, verse 21, each person goes ahead stuffing their own faces and chuggling away on the vino, ignoring the one who has nothing, And doing this even to the point of getting drunk. In this behavior, you are despising the assembly of God and publicly humiliating those who have nothing. Verse 22. 
Thus, the one who eats and drinks without discerning the body is feasting condemnation upon themselves. Verse 29. Because of this, many of the Corinthian Christians, this is why you've been struck down with so much illness, and in fact, a significant number of you have died. This is why. Verse 30. From that evidence, there are different ways for us to visualize what was happening in that church. One way comes from uh, Bible scholar Kenneth Bailey. The worship service was at night, on the first day of the week, that is to say, Sunday. Those who lived lives of leisure, who had estates or businesses and slaves to run them, they came early. Those who worked for a living, or who were the servants or the slaves, they came after work. By the time they'd arrived, all the food or all of the best food, it was all gone. Another way of visualizing what may have been happening comes from Matt Malcolm and others like Gordon Fee. The worship service, of course, was in a private home. It was in the private home of the richest Christian because that home was the biggest. As for every other Jewish or Gentile feast, the seating was hierarchical. No two seats were equal in social value. The rich were invited to recline on the best couches, in the best rooms, and they were offered the best food and wine. The less socially important were offered less important seats further away or in overflow areas or in other rooms and offered little food or cheap food or no food at all. Something like that. Maybe a mixture of both. Either way, some of the people present at those feasts were appalled at what was happening. They were kicking up a fuss. They were quarreling. They knew it wasn't right. Paul says that he can believe it for one reason, and he can readily believe it, that there has to be some people present who get how wrong this all is. And Paul has a revolutionary solution. It's revolutionary. Everyone eats together. Don't start until everyone has arrived. If you're hungry, have a full meal before you come so that, by implication, the Lord's Supper can be a simple and symbolic breaking of bread, drinking of the cup, accompanied by Jesus' own words of institution. No hierarchies, no humiliations, no feasting, no divisions. Now, just as Paul details the problem by way of seven statements, he likewise details the solution by way of four statements. Again, to paraphrase, each person must test themselves or examine themselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup, verse 28. We must discern the body, verse 29. For except that we do that, we invite the judgment of God. If we judged ourselves, we will not be judged. Verse 31. And when we come together, we should all eat together, or as other translations put it, wait for each other. Verse 33. Now, vast quantities, oceans of ink, have been spilt over the centuries on what 
various of those phrases mean? What does it mean to examine oneself? What does it mean to discern the body? But if we allow Paul's solution to fit Paul's understanding of the problem, then he is simply asking us to do this. He's saying, do you understand what it means to belong to the body of Christ? If Jesus died to create one body, what fool would divide it back into hierarchies? If Jesus died to create one body, what fool would shame the brothers and sisters who have little or nothing? Paul's theology of the Lord's Supper is made clear in verse 27. Thus, whoever might eat the bread or might drink the cup of the Lord in an irreverent or unworthy manner will be guilty of the blood body and the blood of the Lord. And then again in verse 32. And when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined or discipled or instructed in order that we might not be condemned with the world. Just as in the Passover, God condemned the world and brought it to judgment, so too in the crucifixion of Jesus, God was condemning the world. By the world, Paul is using a word. The Greek word is cosmos. He doesn't necessarily mean planet Earth. He doesn't necessarily mean the universe, but rather what he means is what we might describe or recognize as organized human society built willfully in ignorance of God. Human beings, human society, ignoring God and reigning on the earth in rejection of his rule. That has been condemned. And by condemned... Paul almost certainly means condemned to eternal punishment. Exclusion from the kingdom of God, exclusion from Christ's presence, from light, from understanding, from love, and from life. That it stands condemned means that the world is continuing, but continuing under suspended sentence. Its final condemnation has not yet been fully revealed, but it is inevitable and unavoidable, the death of the Son is the proof. Now, with respect to God's condemnation of the world, we can either stand with God or we can stand with the world. There's only two choices. And one of the things that these Gentile Christians there in Corinth, they would have been totally familiar with, was making a libation unto Caesar as part of a shared common sacred meal. In other words, they would have drunk from a cup in order to demonstrate publicly their total loyalty to the emperor. Now, to make a libation unto Jesus, to drink from a cup, to show utter loyalty to someone crucified by that emperor, that meant partaking in this new meal, the Lord's Supper, must be a radical demonstration of renouncing the system of the world, a a radical demonstration of standing with God on that judgment, and living by kingdom rules. Disloyalty to worldliness in all of its forms. Thus participating in the Christian sacred meal, joining in at the Lord's table, 
is certainly about remembering how it is that we were saved, how it is that we are forgiven. But it is also about recognizing the rights of fellowship of others. Putting it in a slightly clumsy way, if you'll forgive me, but it is about recognizing our brothers and sisters in Christ as brothers and sisters, belonging to God on the same basis as ourselves through faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, absolutely belonging to God equally. No matter what they look like or who they are. Now, I don't like the language of rights and equality. I don't think it's necessarily the correct language, but hopefully you get the idea. Like the Passover feast, the Lord's Supper is simply this. We remember how it is that God saved us, and we celebrate belonging to each other. It is just that. It can be more than that, but it's never not that. To turn the thing into some kind of new display of worldliness or worldly values with its hierarchies and its degradations is to profane it. It's to turn it into something ugly. Uh, Master and Commander is a favorite film of mine. If you don't know the film, don't worry. What I say, uh, what I have to say will make sense of it. But if you do know the film, you perhaps won't be surprised to learn that Mr. Hollam, the midshipsman, is my favorite character and Mr. Hollam's funeral is my favorite scene. Set in the, Neapol- in, the Neapol- in the Napoleonic Wars, not in Neapolitan ice cream, set in the Napoleonic Wars, thank you, the film itself is about a British Navy battleship in 1805 pursuing a French battleship around the coast of South America. Russell Crowe stars as Captain Jack Aubrey. Mr. Hollam, my favorite character, is a relatively minor role. He's not a natural sailor, nor a natural leader. He doesn't lack courage per se, but he critically lacks self-confidence. And his cautious and hesitant personality is interpreted by his subordinates, the sailors under his direct personal command, as incompetence. We watch as he experiences various forms of being ignored, snubbed, and on occasion, slandered. He's never, ever out-and-out bullied in terms of physical or verbal abuse, but there's no inclusion. There's no respect. Looks, glances, whispers, dismissive comments, even from his peers. His problem becomes the ship's problem when a rumor is started, a rumor that spreads like wildfire through the uneducated, ordinary, and able seamen. They believe that he is a Jonah, an unlucky man, a cursed man, the source of all their recent misfortune as a fighting battleship. And in a short speech, we hear... Mr. Hollam's point of view, all all he wants, all he wants is the approval of the men around him. 
That's all he wants. Eventually, the ship is becalmed in the middle of the ocean in tropical heat, stationary, dead still, no wind, no rain, drinking water, running out. One hot, sweltering night, poor Hollem acts with enormous courage. He um, picks up a cannonball and holding it, he walks off the ship. In real life, we'd say he'd committed suicide, but that's not what he's doing in this fictional film. No, this is fiction, and it must be interpreted as fiction. No, what he's doing is he's offering himself as a living sacrifice. He's accepting the role of scapegoat. He's taking upon himself the sins of the crew, and he is, he is doing with enormous courage what must be done, with no thought as to his own welfare. He is being Jonah. <laughs> the next morning, <laughs> Captain, uh, Captain Jack, uh, Lucky Jack, as he's known to his crew, Lucky Jack presides at the memorial service, and the speech goes like this. We're all God's creatures. If there are those among us who thought ill of Mr. Hollam, spoke ill of him, or failed him, in respect of fellowship, then we ask for our forgiveness, O Lord, and for his. God be praised. Amen. And with that, the wind starts blowing, the rain starts falling, the ship starts moving, and no mention is made of Mr. Hollam ever again. Failed him with respect to fellowship is the most important line in that film from my own point of view. We, we don't all need to be best friends, but we all need to know that we belong, fellowship. This is Paul's charge to the Corinthian church in a nutshell. You are failing certain people with respect to fellowship in a meal designed to celebrate fellowship. That's just it in a nutshell. You are failing certain people with respect to fellowship in a meal designed to celebrate fellowship. The implications of this text then for the contemporary church, the local church, the global church, are staggeringly enormous. Whom do we fail with respect to fellowship? As an Anglican priest, me, as an Anglican priest, this text challenges me with the truth that I regularly participate in Holy Communion with all sorts of people at diocesan events, in the cathedral, at other churches, in other denominations. Together with all kinds of Christians, I break bread and share the cup, many of whom differ from me in looks or in culture, in means and in social standing in theology and in background, in churchmanship. And they differ with me, very likely, in fact, many of them do, on this position or on that position. Do I celebrate Holy Communion with them and then deny them fellowship? Fail them with respect to fellowship? In my speech and action, undermine that very fellowship? If I do, 
I now know the seriousness of my crime. As a conclusion, one final thought. Fellowship and approval are often experienced as the same thing, but they are not. Paul's disapproval of the leadership of the Church of Corinth is at times breathtaking. No wonder we find in 2 Corinthians Paul doing everything he possibly can to be reconciled to this church. His words to them in 1 Corinthians would usually be, from a worldly point of view, deal-breaking, relationship-destroying. How can they come back from this? He has disapproved of them, shamed them, so severely and so publicly. I, I, I think we here at St. Barnabas, we continue the Corinthian tradition of using approval and disapproval as weapons. We have weaponized disapproval. And many of us, perhaps all of us, experience disapproval as rejection. I once ran out of a meeting here at St. Barnabas in the hall, shouting at the top of my voice in anger at those gathered there because I was terrified, literally terrified by their disapproval. In my time here, many, many people have left this church because they disapproved of me or disapproved of something I've said or done. Straight off the top of my head, I can think of four people who have left St. Barnabas because they disapproved of my position on same-sex marriage, it being too conservative. Straight off the top of my head, I can think of four people who have left St. Barnabas because they disapproved of my position on same-sex marriage, it being too liberal. Heaven forbid that you feel sorry for me. That's not the point. You don't need to. But my point is this. Paul disapproved of the leadership of the Corinthian church. He disapproved strongly on their stance on sexual immorality, their re redefinition of marriage, their acceptance of intra-congregational litigation as though it was a fact of life, their playing fast and loose with the fact of resurrection. But most of all, he disapproved of their degrading Holy Communion into a worldly show and profanity. All that public disapproval was unbearable. It was relationship-destroying as far as the Corinthians were concerned but not as far as Paul was concerned. Paul wasn't breaking fellowship with them. Fellowship and approval are not the same thing. They were his brothers and sisters in Christ, and nothing was going to stop him from breaking bread with them. For he gives them this promise. And when I come, I will give you more teaching.